Today's sermon text comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, And at the gates, twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, and its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Please pray with me. Father, thanks be to you, because you always lead us in your triumph in Christ. And you always manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of you in every place. And you say that we are a fragrance of Christ to you. Christ gave himself for us because he loved us. And his offering is a fragrant aroma that rises up to you and is pleasing to you. And that surrounds and covers us now as your people. And so we pray Father, that you would pour out your spirit 
as one who is pleased with us through Christ. And that you would make the glories of what your Son has secured for us plain to us. That you would take our eyes off the world and onto the new heaven and the new earth. And, and that you would help us, Father, to see ourselves through your eyes. And I pray, Father, for those who are not yet in Christ, that as they are helped by your Spirit to see what the the treasuries and storehouses of your kindness have in store for your people, that their cynicisms and doubts about you would fall to the wayside and that as your Spirit shows them the glory of what Christ has achieved, that they would bow in worship before you on this day. And they would rest in the Son of God and Savior of sinners. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, struck this morning as I was thinking about the calendar. I was struck by uh, the providence of the Lord exactly a year ago uh, yesterday. But last year, yesterday was a Sunday. we were in uh, Revelation 4, uh, which is about the throne of God and God's reality as a king over all things, as the creator, as, as really the true center of reality. And that was uh, a year ago on this weekend, which was the weekend when the financial crisis went viral. And what we worshipped the Lord over on that day was... Um, was his supreme rule over all things. And now a year later, we are in Revelation 21, which gives us the vision of a future that no energy or achievement of man could ever earn. And uh, yet which God stands ready this morning to offer, to hold out to any and all who will repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone this morning. This future... God is ready to secure for you through Christ this morning at no cost to you, but by the very high price that His Son has paid. The cross. No cost. If you'll come to Christ this morning, God stands ready to give you this inheritance and allow you uh, to drink from the springs of the water of life without cost for eternity. Uh, it is ridiculous to think that any human being could ever uh, adequately speak of uh, these glories this morning. I just, I know I'm doomed to failure at a certain level this morning, but I know that God will bear witness to His Word because what, uh, what, we're, uh, what we're looking at this morning is the only future that is worth living for. There's only one future that is worth living for. And it's the one that God describes for us in Revelation 21. It is the one that Jesus Christ lived and shed his blood and uh, rose again from the dead in order to purchase uh, for his people. That is the only future that is worth living for. And this is the future that God shows us in Revelation 21. And so I want to ask you right at the beginning, is this the future that you are living for? Because God wants it to be. God wants this to be the future that you are living for. Whether you are a non-Christian who has not yet come to know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or whether you are a Christian whose mind and heart, like everyone, has been bombarded uh, throughout the week and our lives by a different vision for the future, right? This is not the vision of the future that our culture sets before us as the thing we should be living for. Our culture sets a much narrower vision before us, right? One that probably lasts about 80 years. And God is wanting to expand uh, your understanding of what is possible through Christ this morning by looking at Revelation 21. I see three parts in this chapter and that parts relate to each other in this way. Uh, verses one through four are a revelation. Excuse me, are a revelation. They are a revelation. Uh, they're a vision of the future, and they're the verses we looked at last week. But they're a kind of a compressed vision of the future, a, a condensed version of the future. And then in verses five through eight, 
which we're going to look at this morning. What happens is God stops that vision of the future for a minute, pauses it, and then addresses us in the present about that future. And then he does that for four verses of verses five through eight. And then we get an expanded vision of the church's future in verses nine through twenty seven. So let's look first at verses five through eight this morning where God addresses us in the present about the relevance in the present of the visions of the future that he's now giving. Now, it's important to see that when we get to verse 5, there are two transitions that take place. Number one, there's a transition in speaker. Notice we move from God being talked about in the third person now to God speaking directly in the first person. Behold, and, the, and he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. So now, God himself is speaking. But there's another transition that's very important to notice. Otherwise, you won't know how to apply verses 5 through 8. Nor will you know how to apply verses 1 through 4 or 9 through 27. I mean, if God is going to show us the future, we need to know how, what we're supposed to do with it. Are we just supposed to think about it as something that is distant and remote and that one day we will get to experience if we are in Christ, but which at a practical level is not designed by God to make any difference in our life here and now? Is that what we're supposed to do with these visions of the future? Or, of course, that's not what we're supposed to do with them, right? Which is nothing. Uh, God has plans for us. He wants us to change. He wants us to, to change in the present because of what he shows us about the future. And so what's happening in, in verse 5 is not only is the speaker changing, not only is God speaking directly, but the time frame is changed. We're not in the future anymore. God, it's like God pauses and now says, Now, before I go any further, before I show you any more of what the church's future is in Christ, I need to make sure that you understand some things. I need to make sure that you get how significant this is. And there are, five, there are four guideposts, four things you need to remember as we go forward about how you're supposed to live in the present now in light of the future. There are goals that God has for Christians and non-Christians. And then there are four things that need to be remembered. Now, we know God is speaking in the present now because it's not that John, I need to back up because I rushed past an important point because you may not be persuaded. So forgive me. Notice in verse five that God says, behold, I am making all things new. That's a statement about the present. And then in the second half of verse 5, he says, he issues a command. He says, write, for these words are faithful and true. Well, who's he talking to there? He's talking to John. We see that from the beginning of verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, God is now turning from the future, speaking to John in the present. And he is saying, I'm going to explain this to you. And the first thing I want you to see about verses 5 through 8 is that there, there is a a relevance of these verses now to both Christians and non-Christians. God is addressing both Christians and non-Christians in verses, the, the second half of verse 6 through verse 8. So these verses are very relevant to this assembly. It's very interesting. When you read the New Testament, there are two assumptions that the New Testament writings never make. They never make these two assumptions. One, that everyone who hears or reads the New Testament writings are Christians. So New Testament writings always assume that there are unconverted people even within the church. The second assumption the New Testament writings never make is that 100% of those who are already Christians are walking well with Jesus Christ. And so there is always the assumption that there is some segment of people in the church that needs an exhortation, that needs to be yanked a little bit, that needs to be reminded of how serious the stakes are in the present. And you'll notice that's exactly how uh, the, the, the second half of verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 function. They deal with both. They deal with both groups because we see promises and warnings. 
God sets out promises of what the future inheritance will be. He pauses the vision of the future and he says, let me make sure you understand the stakes. If you overcome, you will inherit these things and I will be your God and you will be my son. If you persevere until the end, you will inherit these things. You will drink. I will personally give to you from the waters of life out of the spring of the water of life without cost. But you must persevere. Now, who's that being addressed to? Christians. Christians who have begun to run more slowly. Who have begun to get a little lazy or who are a little tired. Who have gotten numb or weary. And who need a jolt about what's at stake. Why it's worth it to persevere. Why it's worth it to pursue holiness. Why it's worth it to pour yourself into the Christian life and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But those promises are just as much for non-Christians to hear as well. Because what God is doing with those promises for you is He's showing you what His intentions are. And through the beauty of those promises, He's wanting to draw you to Christ. And the warnings in verse 8 function in exactly the same way for both Christians and non-Christians. Friends, look at that list of people who are not going to end up in this future inheritance. The cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Wait a second. Revelation was given to the churches. So why are those things being talked about? They're being talked about so that we as Christians would be reminded again how serious sin is. There would be like this electric fence that would be around these things for us. That we would not compromise or water down our commitment to holiness. That we would acknowledge the danger of sin and not live like there isn't a temptation to compromise in the present. So that's how that list speaks to Christians. It also speaks to non-Christians. And what God does is He brings the end to the present. So you see what the stakes are and why you should move to Christ. That's how God addresses his people in these verses. And there are four things that he gives us. Four things that we need to remember about the present. The first is, these are things we need to see about the present as an inducement to keep us persevering. To sustain our faithfulness and endurance and to draw us to Christ. And the first thing is to remember that God is already making all things new. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. He's saying, I am already doing this. This is not just a remote future that I'm showing you in these visions of the church. I have already begun this work. I am already doing it. And you say, well, wait a second. There's still a lot of crying. And there's still a lot of, a lot of mourning. And there's a lot of tears left. And there's still death. Francis, you still do funerals. So what do you mean God is already making all things new? Well, the New Testament teaches us very plainly that God is already making all things new. First, He does it in Christ. In both Colossians and Revelation, Jesus is described as the firstborn from the dead. Right? When Jesus is raised from the dead, He is the firstborn of the new creation. When Jesus is raised on Easter Sunday, what's happening is that the new creation is walking and breathing and talking on planet Earth. And God is saying, see, the future is breaking into the present. But God is not only doing it in Christ, He's doing it in every Christian. Every Christian is part of the new creation. Friends, God, if you are a Christian, you are already proof that God is making all things new. One of the first verses that people will often memorize after they become Christians is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Listen to this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Literally in the Greek it says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Like, if anyone is in Christ, look! New creation! It doesn't just mean if anyone is in Christ, his habits change. Because that often doesn't happen. There's something shocking that's being said there. God is saying, see, proof. Christ was raised from the dead, firstborn of the new creation, and every Christian afterwards, everyone who is in Christ, I am making all things new. That's what we need to remember first. The second one that we need to remember is that it's already done. That's verse 6. 
It is done. What does that mean? Well, this is really a statement about the power of Christ's work. From God's perspective, I mean, when you're in the book of Revelation, the most significant event in human history is the death and the resurrection of Christ. In the death and resurrection of of Christ, God's purposes for history are secured. So in a certain sense, everything in the wake of Christ's uh, successful death as a substitute for his people to purchase uh, men and women and children from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the earth and for God and to make them a kingdom and priest to God. That and his resurrection, that is the climax, if you will, of history in a certain sense. And everything after that is guaranteed. This future is guaranteed by the work of Christ. There's no uncertainty here. In other words, what, what the Lord is saying to us in verse 6 is, remember, persevere, because, because Jesus' death and resurrection have already secured this future. It is done. So great And complete was Christ's work that the new heavens and the new earth are as good as here already. It's a vision of the cross and the work of Christ. The third thing is to remember that God is sovereign over all of history. That's what verse 6, point of verse 6 is. And he said to me, it is done. And now, uh, listen to the second part. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Well, what does that mean? Well, Alpha was the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. The beginning and the end. Well, okay, so what does that mean? What that means is that God is the author of history and he is the goal of history. Now, if he is going to be the alpha and the omega, what that means is that he controls everything in between. Right. If he's not only the source and origin of it, but also guarantees the destination, if he says, I am the Omega, then that necessarily means that everything in between Alpha and the Omega, he owns and he controls. So what he's saying here is I've just shown you a vision of the future in verses one through four. I'm going to show you a much bigger, more detailed vision of what I have in store for the people of Christ in verses 9 through 27, and I want you to have no doubts about how certainly this will be fulfilled. Because remember, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. There is nothing that will arise between the Alpha and the Omega that I am not sovereignly controlling. So my purposes will be fulfilled. God wants you to trust in Him because of His sovereignty, my friends. He wants you to rejoice in that. And some of you may be hearing this, this Calvinistic theology coming out and you may, you may find it a burr in your saddle and I say you should repent if you are offended by that or provoked. God means for that to be a comfort for you. And if He isn't both the Alpha and the Omega, well then who is in your system? If it's not God, is it man? Friends, what confidence or joy does that get for you? We've just spent a year watching the most powerful government in the world drool on itself. Not knowing what to do. Pushing this lever, pushing that lever, improvising. Maybe this will work. Maybe that won't work. Maybe, well, that doesn't work. Friends, don't you see? For God to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, that's a shelter. Oh, that's my hope. The fourth thing is, remember the Bible. Remember how much you need the Bible in these days. Well, where's that? Well, notice in verse 5, when, when the Lord says to John, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Well, why does he tell John to write? I mean, that's not a, that's not a command to write in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a command in the present, to write about the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, you write down things that are important. You write down things that you want to remember. You write down things so that you can transmit them to other people. And God is commanding John here to write down this vision so that as the apostle receives this vision and records the record of it, it will be disseminated to the churches, which means this. It means that when God commands John to write, he is commanding us to read. 
He's commanding us to attend to His Word. We will not make it to the end. If you're a Christian, you will not make it to the end without your Bible. Friends, God is saying, read here. He's saying, you will, you will overcome. You cannot overcome Bible-lessly. We are all students of something. We are all studying something. We are all filling in our hearts with something and meditating on something. And it better be more than the TV. It better be more than baseball or football or money. God is saying you won't make it to the end unless you have my promises on your heart. Friends, living Biblelessly is not just negligence, it's dangerous. And I, I have prayed over this point that for those of you who need this kick, that you would not simply hang your head and say, well, I know, I've tried this before, but that you would feel the danger of living outside your Bible. God is saying, write, which means that He is saying, read. You know, if you look at my Bible, you know, when you guys, when I die, and you want to look at my Bible, you'll be able to tell where I've spent time. Because my fingers are always dirty. When I look at my Bible and there's certain, you know, there's just gook that's on your hands and your fingers when you turn the pages. Right. And you can find my foot. My fingerprints are all over this Bible in some places, much more than others. The pages are dingy and yellow and all that stuff. And I noticed as I was, you know, I'm on the last two pages of my Bible here with these two chapters. And so I'm looking I'm saying, you know, these pages are pretty white. Francis, why are they so white? They're white because I have not dwelt here. And so what I want to say is pray for me and pray for you that we will get our fingerprints all over these two pages of Revelation 21 and 22, that these will be the messiest pages in our whole Bible. That we will be people who hear the Lord say to John, write, for these words are faithful and true. So we will be reading them because they are faithful and true. And these will be how we think about the future. Yes, but more importantly, how that future, how that future comes in and knowing what God has provided and knowing his sovereignty and knowing what Christ has achieved in his cross and knowing that God is already making all things new in Christ. Friends, we will be changed into how we should live to the glory of God in the present. So let's look at the bride now. We're out of the present. Let's look at the bride. Verses 9 through 27. First, I just want you to see that what's happening in verses 9 through 27 is we are being shown the church in her end times glory through the eyes of God. You're being allowed to see yourself now through the eyes of God if you're a Christian. And if you're a non-Christian, what these verses are is God setting before you really all the intentions of his heart, at least as much as human language can possibly express it. And that's not very well. Uh, what God's goals are for his people. And when, like we talked about last week, you don't really know someone until you know their goals. But when you see the goals that they have, then you begin to know them. And so what this really is in these 19 verses or so, or 18 verses, whatever it is, this is really God just turning his heart inside out so that you can see what he's really like. So if you're a non-Christian and you've come in here with certain categories about God, just like I did, I mean, I remember the, the ideas that I had about God when I first started coming to church when I was in college. And I remember how just again and again all these um, prejudices is a good word for some of it, but also just, just ideas that I had picked up and manufactured and kind of jammed together, how unbiblical they were. Now, the God that I had kind of constructed in my brain and what he was like, yeah, I didn't like him. But I had what I discovered is that that wasn't the God of the Bible. He was the God of my own making. It's like I, had, I created a little voodoo doll that I would use to, use to poke. That was essentially what it was. Yeah, that's ugly. So I don't have to worship that. If I could create that in categories, that would be a distortion and a character of the real God. And I would say, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, whatever that is in my brain, that, 
I have no interest in serving that. But the problem is this. Is that God is very jealous for His glory. And He's eager for the truth to be known about Him. And in His grace, He used His Word in my life to show me that the caricature I carried around of Him was a lie. And so, you know, that was a gracious thing that He did. And I pray that he'll do the same thing this morning as we see, as we see what his heart has uh, prepared for his people and what Jesus Christ has secured for his people. This is a vision of the church. Now, I realize it's a little confusing because on one hand we, we, we hear talk of a city and Jerusalem. And so, there's, you know, there's a lot of biblical roots to that and there's a certain amount of complexity, but there's also a simplicity here that I don't want you to miss. And we know this is the church really from what the angel says to John in verse 9, right? This is how he identifies her. Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, that's just unmistakable. That's, that's, we know that's the church, right? She is the bride of Christ. We've already seen that in this book. So we know then that everything that's going to come later is going to be a description of the church. So when a holy city is described, when Jerusalem is described, we know that that is in some sense a picture of the church. Okay? So we're talking about the church. And, and as I was thinking about this, I, I was reminded of what Paul says about the Lord Jesus in Ephesians 5. You know, when he's talking to husbands about how we are to love our wives... He says husbands should love their wives as Christ. Listen to this, Ephesians 5. As Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, now here's is the second half that really got me this week. That Why did he cleanse her by the washing of water with the word? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. You see, what Revelation 21 is now is we see the fulfillment of Christ's work. He, here is the church, spotless and blameless, being presented to Christ, cleansed, purified by His love and all of His work. And now here she is in all her glory. All the fruit of Christ's labors of love for such a beautiful vision. And the first thing about the bride that I want you to see is what her identity is. What is the church in her end times glory, the chief and climactic facet of her identity, of our identity, will be that we will be the dwelling place of God. Now that's shown to us in in three ways in this text. It's, it's what we heard in verse 3 last week. A loud voice comes from the throne, remember? And the voice says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them. And he shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them. In other words, in the new heaven and the new earth, what's going to mark the people of God is that God Himself is going to dwell in their midst. And that's what we see again here in verses 9 through 27. We see it three different ways. The first is that the bride is compared to the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. And we see that in verses 12 through 13. There's a high wall. Do you notice this? There's a great and high wall. And it has 12 gates. The city's a square. Okay? And there are 12 gates around the perimeter of the city. Three on each side. Three on each point of the compass. Well, friends, and we talked about it in Sunday school today. We know from Numbers chapter 2 that that is how the camp of Israel in the wilderness was to be organized and set up. God's very particular. He says each side of the tabernacle should have three tribes camping on it. Do you notice that each of the 12 gates is named after a tribe of Israel? So when we look at this through the eyes of kind of the history of biblical imagery, the first thing that we're seeing here is this city is set up to be like the tabernacle, which means that the center of this city is going to be the presence of God. That's what that symbolism is saying. The presence of God is going to be here. But this city is not a, a physical city. This is the people of God. So God's presence is going to dwell in them. But it gets even more beautiful than that because not only is the bride the tabernacle, 
It's intensified, you know, because the tabernacle, there was a lot of space in the tabernacle. And God's presence was not in the whole tabernacle. And the people dwelt on the outside of the tabernacle. God's presence only was in the Holy of Holies. So even within the restrictive area of the tabernacle, there was a subset of that restricted area where God's presence was limited to. And so what we see in the imagery here in Revelation 21 is that not only is the, are the people of God compared to the tabernacle, but we are described as the very holy of holies. Let me show you that in verse 16. If you notice how the city's measurements are laid out. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as, its, as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. It means it's a cube. Well, there's only one other cube in the entire Bible, and that is the Holy of Holies. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, you'll see that the, the Holy of Holies was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. It was a cube. And what this imagery is saying is that now the place where God's presence dwelt and the people of God merge. And there is no separation anymore between God and his people. That all the barriers and all the separation... All the gaps have been closed now. And the people of God dwell with God in perfect communion. Always. That's why in verse 22 we hear that there's no temple in the city. There's no temple in the city because the whole city is a temple. Because the Lord and the Lamb are its temple. Because the dwelling place of, of man is now the dwelling place of God. And the dwelling place of God is now the dwelling place of man. And friends, all of that is by the work of Christ. It's just absolutely beautiful. What will define us? This is what God wants, friends. You're wondering, how much does God... I'm a big sinner. You, I'm a big sinner. If you knew what I had done, uh, the guilt I have, the things I have done, the disinterest I've shown toward God, the blasphemy, the failures, the hurt I've caused other people, if you knew that, you would never speak of God's grace to me. Are you kidding me? Friends, do you see how passionate God is here for reconciliation between his image bearers and himself, that in the ultimate goal is that there will be no separation between God and his image bearers. We will be made by the work of Christ, not by dint of our hard effort, but by the work of Christ, the very dwelling place for God. This is the glorious God of the universe who could fill the entire universe and still not have enough room. He could pick any home he wants in the entire universe. He could make anything his royal palace. He's worthy of anything. And yet he decides in his grace that it will be his people who will be his royal palace. So don't doubt the passion of God to reconcile you to him through Christ. Friends, it's awesome. There's only one future that is worth living for, and it's the future friends, of dwelling eternally in peace with God. So this is the only future that's worth living for, being the royal palace of the living God with his nearness as our greatest good. Christians, I want you to remember that he who overcomes will inherit these things. And God will be your God and you will be a son or a daughter to him. And non-Christians, what future are you living for? The Son of God lived, died, rose again to make this future of dwelling in perfect unity with God yours. Will you not come to Him this morning? Will you not give your life to a God who plans such purposes of kindness toward you and who has made every provision for that reconciliation to happen through Christ? Oh, friends, why would you prefer separation from God to unity with the second thing about her is I want you to notice her beauty. She is stunningly beautiful. Do you notice all the light and all the precious uh, stones and metals that are used? There's gold everywhere. There are jewels everywhere. 
But really, the summary of who she is is in verse 11. Do you notice when John sees her coming down, he carried me away in the spirit to a, uh, to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And notice, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. See the secret. It's not a secret, really. The, the key to her beauty and every facet of it is that we, as the people of God, will have the glory of God. The city is compared to a very costly stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, jasper's not crystal clear. What that really means is a shining jasper. Friends, if you go back to chapter 4, that is exactly the way God himself was described. When John sees him on his throne, he's compared to Jasper. Shining Jasper. So in other words, what we see here is that we, as the people of God, the future he's prepared for us is that he is going to pour all of his glory on us. There is nothing that God is going to hold back from his people. He will share all of his glory with us. He will hold nothing back from his people. Everything that, that, that Satan said to Adam and Eve, every, what every temptation banks on, the strategy of every single temptation is to raise or to sow seeds in your heart and mind that God is not as good as he says he is. That he's going to hold something back from you. That he, there's something good that you need or that you're entitled to that God is going to keep from you, right? That's exactly how the first temptation worked with Adam and Eve. God didn't tell you something. Oh, he didn't tell you that? Huh. Well, that must be because he doesn't want you to be wise. That's how every temptation works. And now at the end of time, we see this vision of how God, God's not just going to give a little. He's not just going to dole out this ration of his glory. No, the city is going to be drenched with the full glory of God. He's not going to hold anything back. So don't you buy the lie that God is going to hold something back from you, Christian. Don't you doubt the intentions of his heart. This is a beauty of such fullness. There's light everywhere. And it all comes from God. We reflect it. The city is made of all these things, gold and precious jewels, all these materials that are designed to reflect. They aren't the source of the beauty, right? They reflect that beauty and that glory. The whole city is like this great reflecting mirror. So the glory of God pours on it and the glory of God is shown back. And the glory of the mirror is, is, is elevated by reflecting back the glory of God. And it all comes from God. And the people are designed in such a way that their existence is fulfilled by reflecting back that glory of God being radiant and full of precious materials. Gold, right? Her walls are jasper. The gates are pearls. Her street is pure gold. The entire city is gold, just like, just like uh, Solomon's uh, temple. The inside of the entire temple, First Kings says, was overlaid with gold. That's what this whole city is. Because God's presence is there. What is God doing? Why is he showing us his, the beauty of the church like this? What's his method here? What's his purpose? It's important to think about this. Friends, he wants us to see, Christians, he wants us to see ourselves through his eyes. He wants us to see how he looks upon the church in Christ. He wants us to see that because of the work of Christ, what we often do not see, right? What we often do not see, either when we look in the mirror or when we look at each other as brothers and sisters, we don't see beauty like this so often. You look inside your own heart and how often do you see beauty? You look in the mirror, how often do you see beauty? You look at your neighbors, even in the church, how often do you see beauty? Friends, God wants us to see that in Christ, This is the future He has for us. That we are precious. We are made precious by the blood of Christ. We've been purchased for God. God sent His Son into the world to purchase us for Himself and to make us a kingdom and priest to our God. 
Maybe it's a little bit easier to think about the church as, a, as an institution or this international body being beautiful. But when you, you start moving from the general to the specific level of real people, it gets a little bit harder to see the beauty, to think about the beauty. But, you know, the visions of Revelation 21 are not of a building. They're of a people which is built of particular individuals all of whom have been united by the work of Christ. And in the building materials of beauty and in the radiance of the light and in his decision to give her his glory, what God is saying is that he has a very high opinion of the people who have been purchased by Christ. And that is a call for all of us to repent of the ways in which we hold low opinions of her and low opinions of particular people in the church. Friends, one of the ways that this gets put into practice, I think, in the present is that we need to repent over not regarding brothers and sisters as beautiful, as precious in the sight of the Lord. It may be people who've hurt us or disappointed us. It might be people who disagree with us over something that matters to us. It may even be who we see in the mirror. But may I say this, that I don't believe we're going to make any progress in loving or forgiving anyone who is a brother or sister in Christ, until we acknowledge that this future is their future. That God has reserved for them. Friends, there's only one future that is worth living for, and it is the future of having the glory of God and of being radiant with His beauty. Christians, remember that he who overcomes shall inherit these things. And non-Christians... What future, I want to ask you, are you living for? This is the future that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again to purchase for all who will repent of their sins and trust in Him. This is the future Jesus Christ wants you to live for. Then I want you to see the church's security, the people of God, and their security. Um, This comes out mostly in verses 15 through 17 in the measuring that's done. You may have wondered, what in the world's going on there? What is that angel doing with that gold rod? Well, we saw in chapter 11, the same kind of thing happened in chapter 11, and this is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 40. The act of measuring is essentially a symbolic um, guarantee by God of protection. So when something is being measured, when the city is being measured by this golden rod, what's being shown is that this is essentially God's guarantee of the city's perimeter. God's, it's under God's protection. So that's the first way we see the security of the people of God. The second way we see is you look at those walls. Those things are enormous. Okay? They're 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. Okay, is that clear? They're 12,000 stadia high. Well, a stadia is uh, 600 feet. So that means the wall is 7,200,000 feet tall, which is about 1,363 miles, regardless of what the NAS said. And, of course, you know, as soon as I'm doing that math, I'm saying, how high does a space shuttle go? So I went to NASA's website. And a space shuttle, now this, of course, is just symbolic, but I thought this was interesting. The space shuttle... The highest orbit that the space shuttle ever goes in is 330 miles above sea level. And this is a thousand, uh, yeah, it's a thousand miles beyond it. This is enormous. And then the walls are 144 cubits thick, which is about 216 feet. Now, the point is this. No one can defeat this city. No one can threaten this city. This is power. This is stability. This is impenetrable. In fact, this city is so safe, you notice the gates are always open. There's no threat to this city. She's massive. She's so significant. She fills the whole new heaven and new earth. The people of God are so massive and weighty in the sight of God. And she is secure. Friends, we need to remember that. Friends, it's so easy in our day to 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 buy into the panic that's afoot in our culture. It's so easy as Christians for us to make ourselves accomplices in the godless panic 
that sweeps through our culture over anything, whether it's terrorism, whether it's whose health care plan you want, whether it's whether the recession is over. Friends, you are a person of Christ. You should not panic in the way that the people of the world panic. You are secure. You are secure, friends. Your eternal destiny is secure. You should look at this city. You should look at what God has guaranteed for this city, for your future as a person of God. And you should be able to stand in a storm, friends. We are infinitely secure. Friends, there's only one future that is worth living for, and it is the future of being kept by the power of God. And knowing Him as your eternal stronghold and your fortress and living on Him as your rock. Christians, He who overcomes will inherit these things. And non-Christians, what future are you living for? Where is your stronghold? Where is your confidence toward the future? When the wind blows, what is your anchor? Look at what Christ holds out to you. Look at the future that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to purchase for you if you will repent of your sins and trust in His work alone. Friends, is this the future you are living for? And then finally, I want you to look at the citizens of this city. They are true human beings. First, the first thing I want you to see is that they're international. Uh, there's a very uh, consistent emphasis in this passage on the multi-ethnic character of the people of God in the end times. And that's shown in all kinds of ways. First of all, if you look at the end of the passage in verses 24 and 26, you see the kings of the earth bring the glory and honor of the nations into the city. This is a, this is a city where all the kings from all the nations come in to the city and they bring the glory and honor of the nations, not the wealth of the nations, but the worship of the nations. And then if you look at 12 gates on four sides, there's a lot of gates and the number four in Revelation is a number that is symbolic of all the earth. It's the four points of the compass. There are gates on each of the four sides. In other words, people of God are coming from everywhere. Right? Membership is from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what we've seen already in Revelation. Right? When Revelation wants to celebrate Christ's achievement in chapter 5, what it does is it says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased with God. Purchase for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What, what, what heaven celebrates about the cross and Christ's work is that it was sufficient to purchase a people from every corner of the globe. In other words, not just Israel, but every nation. And that's what we see here coming from all directions. Twelve gates on four sides. And then all the dimensions of the city are in multiples of twelve. Twelve thousand stadia. The thickness is 144 cubits, 12 times 12. 12 being the number of the people of God. There are 12 foundation stones. And then I want you to see this. This is very surprising. You notice the way the city's construction is described. Now, this is dangerous because I am not a builder and I am not the son of a builder. Okay? I, I don't even know where my toolbox is at home. Okay? But when I look at this image, here's what I see. I see a foundation... And then I see a city built on top of the foundation. That makes sense to me. And then there are gates in, around the walls of the city. That makes sense to me. And in my mind, the foundation comes first, right? You have to build the foundation first, and then you set the city on top of it, right? Uh, am I okay so far? Foundation first, then the city. Now, if this city is a picture of the whole people of God, both Jew and Gentile, then here's what I, I, I'm surprised by the image here. Because you notice the foundation, the 12 foundation stones are the apostles of the Lamb. And the gates of the city are the tribes of Israel. In other words, the thing that this picture says comes first, if you will, is the New Testament and the work of Christ. And the thing that rests on it is Israel. Now, that's not an accident. And it's meant to say something very important about the unity of the Bible, about the relationship of the church to Israel, and about the work of Jesus Christ. 
Now, some of you have come out of traditions in which you have been taught that God's main interest in history is Israel. That Israel is his first love. And that the only reason the Gentiles have been uh, brought the gospel is because the Jews rejected their Messiah. And so God turned his back on the Jews and brought the gospel to the nations in order, as Romans 11 says, to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they might come in. And eventually the love story between God and Israel will be completed. But in that scenario, the church, the multi-ethnic Gentile church is kind of a detour. Now, friends, I just can't say strongly enough how, how unbiblical that is. How unhelpful that is. And how unable you are to reconcile that with this imagery. You see, if that were the Bible's narrative, then Israel would be the foundation and then the gates would be named after the apostles. But you see, it's the reverse. And what's being told to us is that from the beginning, Jesus and the gospel going to all the nations has been from the beginning God's plan A. That it is the multi-ethnic church that includes both Jews and Gentiles that has always been the apple of God's eye. Friends, that, that underneath the promise of Genesis 3.15... That there would be a redeemer was the Lamb of God and his apostles and the words of his ministry. That underneath uh, God's covenant with Abraham was the Lamb and the, and the covenant uh, that he would seal in his blood. The Lamb was underneath the covenant with Abraham. The Lamb and his ministry were underneath the Exodus. The Lamb and his ministry were underneath Mount Sinai. The Lamb and his ministry and the gospel announced by the apostles to the nations were underneath David's throne. And what this says is the entire Bible is about the Lamb. Friends, it's one book about one Redeemer and one people assembled under the power of that Redeemer from all the nations. That is the story. But not only are the citizens international, but friends, and this is the last point, do you notice they're all kings? You know, so the only actual literal people you see in this passage are in verse 24. And the nation shall walk by its light. And notice this. Now we see real people. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Well, who are the kings of the earth? Who are those people? Who are those people? I mean, this is the new heaven and the new earth. This is the glorified people. God, who is that? Who are the kings of the earth? I'm looking at them. It's you. It's me. Friends, do you understand? This is a picture of art. In the new heaven and the new earth, there are no, there's no one else but kings of the earth. This is why Jesus died and rose again to make us kings. This is why He laid aside His crown. This is what sh- the message of Revelation is from the beginning. He purchased for God with His own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign Upon the earth, that's kingly language there. Friends, you are looking at your destiny. Kings of the earth. This is God's plan for you. To be a king. This was God's plan for man from the beginning. Right? When, when He made us in His image, He commanded Adam and Eve. He blessed them and He said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule and subdue it. That's, that's a kingly mandate. That was what happened in creation. That was God's design for man. And the fall, Adam and Eve said, No, we'd rather, we don't want to be kings under you. We want to be exclusive kings. So, no. God doesn't walk away from that purpose. He sends His Son into the world to live and die and rise again in order to reconcile those rebels to God. And what does He do when He's reconciled them? He makes them kings. He doesn't go away from His plan. So you, you think about your life. I want you to think about your life. Think If you are going to be a king of the earth, friend, how important is your life? Do you realize what you're doing right now? I mean, think about Prince Charles, okay? When he was young, he was raised, you know, he was a seven-year-old just like the rest of us, but he wasn't. Because from the moment he could hear, what was he being told over and over and over again? Your future 
is as a monarch. You are going to live as a king. And that changed the way he lived, right? Friends, it should happen with no with much more power in your life because the realm is over the entire earth. We're kings of the earth. This is God's purpose. I want you to think about your life and how important it is. And then, particularly if you're a non-Christian, what I want you to see here is another evidence of the generosity of God. How He takes somebody who is a rebel and through the work of Christ, He gives them this destiny of reigning under his throne as a vice-regent over creation. Now, that's a vision that doesn't trivialize man. Friends, there's only one future living, worth living for, and it's the future of being among God's people, being lovingly and eternally purchased by Christ's own blood, and at last truly and fully human in this sense, and then reigning forever as God's vice-regent. That is the only future that is worth living for. And no eye has seen and no ear has heard and it has never entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him in the only future that is worth living for. Let's pray. Father, would you grant that this would be the future we all, everyone in this room, live for until our dying breath. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.